0: Hello and welcome to this special edition of the HSJ Health Check podcast in which we're hearing from the chief executives of some of the hospital trusts most affected by COVID over the past two years, based on analysis we've carried out and published on hsj.co.uk. Over those past two years, they've not generally been permitted to speak to the media on the record about their experiences, but in this part two of two episodes, we'll hear from them about what support was available as they went through a very long haul of COVID pressures their dilemmas of balancing COVID care and other urgent operations, NHS capacity and collaboration, including a need for more of that right now, as the NHS battles to keep up with waiting lists, which are in a bad place and with some areas much worse than others. I'm Dave West, HSJ Deputy Editor, and we'll be hearing from Susan Gilby, Countess of Chester Hospital Chief Executive, Clive Kay of King's College Foundation Trust, Matthew Kershaw of Croydon Health Services and Richard Beacon, who was Chief Executive of Walsall Manor Hospital in the West Midlands until early 2021, and since then of nearby Sandwell and West Birmingham hospitals. Firstly, Dr Gilby, on what was sometimes a lonely experience of being one of the general hospitals, hit very hard.
1: Unfortunately, I was um, struck down with a fairly um, bad case of COVID um, in early April and was you know completely out of the picture for uh, two weeks and then you know struggling for for a third week. And I came back to find um, you know to to my horror that we really were much more challenged than anybody had expected. but more importantly, there was a lack of recognition of that in the system and I don't mean that people were ignoring it. It just wasn't visible because of the way in which people were focused on the numbers and they were focused on critical care. Um, But they didn't necessarily have that understanding of the percentage uh, bed occupancy and the overlying infection prevention control restrictions that would have such an impact on delivery of other services and also on um, the the flexible way in which our staff had to work, which was putting a huge strain on them. So, do you
0: think the issue there is about uh, the what wasn't understood was the impact on general hospitals, as opposed to sort of them big, bigger teaching hospitals with large intensive care, you know, units? Or what do you?
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I understandably because at that point, um, you know, critical illness was a was a big feature of. Of the disease profile, and um, there there was almost well, there was a great deal of anxiety. I think in every system around critical care capacity. So in critical care, we have always had a practice of what would now be called mutual aid, but in previous you know years, it would just be a inter hospital transfer or referral, um, and that you know I've been working in critical care for decades and that would be the norm but people were now people outside of the critical care networks um were now getting involved in addressing the pandemic through things like gold command and this was now regarded as um something that needed an awful lot of input which which actually distracted from looking at the wider problem which was the impact on general hospitals yes but also on those who were going to be, uh, I I don't want to use the word neglected, those who were going to have to wait unacceptable lengths of time for other types of care outside the COVID diagnostic group. Um, And that was, again, I think it was because my background was becoming more and more apparent and more and more concerning. And yet we were still being told that there were certain procedures, certain elective um, pathways that we needed to stand down um, and the impact of that in the longer term has been really very significant. But people do have short memories. So it's been very helpful for me actually to see the analysis that's been done in terms of the percentage impact of COVID on individual trusts, because it isn't a surprise to see that those are also the organisations with the biggest, some of the biggest challenges in terms of elective recovery. And when you compound that with the challenges that, we already faced as an organisation before the pandemic, then you're really compounding a what is a, a big systemic long-standing problem. But to be honest with you, it wasn't really until we got into the second wave. Um, so we, we had a period in the summer, if you recall, um, 2020, where there was a a lull in COVID cases. And um, there was very much a... Um, a uh, incentive not incentive a a, a priority to have a a back on track program in terms of elective recovery and i remember very clearly there was the um a july letter from the center saying you must return to all elective activity and and address the backlog and people were responding to that and developing um plans and before those plans had been significantly implemented we were back in another And it was at that pro- at that point, really, that there, there felt like there was a big disconnect between what we were experiencing in the organisation and what was being experienced in the rest of the country and probably even in the region and what the imperatives were that were coming out of, of the centre. Completely understand why, but it was really hard. Because
0: they were talking to... about elective recovery when you were seeing a significant we impact. We were
1: seeing a significant impact, Um mm and by the time we got to october that that had increased some considerable amount and uh, you know you'll see from the the graphs that from probably the end of the summer 2020 until well into the spring 2021 we were um the hardest hit second hardest hit trust in the in the country but i think if you showed that to anybody in, the, you know, the, any of our partners in systems, whether regulators or or other providers, they would be very surprised to hear that.
0: Mm. Um, and there's quite a, a number of things that, you know, I'm keen to unpack there. But on, just on, on that one point, do you have an understanding, as you said, it's not an inner a city trust particularly. Do you have an understanding with the local community of, of why it might have been?
1: Um, I think there were a number of things. Um, so, first of all, we have a elderly demographic um, and obviously um, throughout the pandemic, the the elderly and unvaccinated, and at that point everybody was unvaccinated, um, were obviously um, more likely to have serious disease and more likely to die. Um, because of the elderly, um, elderly population and the elderly profile of the patients coming to the hospital in the first wave and in the the first half of the second wave. Um, we were seeing less impact on critical care, although that that was significant. I mean, we had to um, more than double the size of our critical care unit. Um, but the impact was on the general and acute beds. And as I say, the focus on critical care meant that it was perhaps less obvious. So I, I have a very strong recollection of January 2021 being in a CEO provider collaborative meeting um, and somebody was basically giving a briefing on what we needed to prepare for in terms of this wave, next wave that was coming. And at that point I was sitting with 44% of my beds occupied by COVID patients. And I, I was very, you know, quite forceful in my, you know, explaining the situation we were in that seemed to be, um, the but we felt quite alone in that, that position. And, um, you know i have to say that i'm really proud of our staff um as others have said our critical care outcomes even though we were in the position we were um were amongst the best nationally and remain so um and people going above and beyond you know working in such a flexible way um and also putting in place um support systems for families who couldn't visit who couldn't visit um was was really quite remarkable, it really was. And we were doing that completely alone, um, and at the same time, worried about patients who needed time-critical, non-COVID-related treatment. Um, And as a result of my speaking up in that particular um, meeting, individual CEOs from individual trusts in the system contacted me personally, and we arranged mutual aid um, for particular specialties, and I'm extraordinarily grateful to those people.
0: But Susan believes action could have been taken earlier in the pandemic to have meant fewer people missed out or had to wait way too long for urgent and often life-saving operations. Specifically, she talks about merging the PTL, patient tracking list, which is effectively a hospital's scheduling of when they'll carry out operations for different patients. Several of the chief executives talked about the importance of sharing those across trusts now, to make sure that patients get operations in the order they need them, rather than when their local hospital has capacity. But Susan says that could have begun much earlier.
1: What, in hindsight, I think we could have done sooner and stronger um, was recognise, and I remember suggesting this in April 2020, was recognise that we needed to combine the patient treatment lists And we needed to make some very brave decisions about treating those with the, not who had been waiting the longest, but with the highest clinical priority, um, treating those irrespective of where they lived. Um, So that, you know, for Cheshire and Mersey, we combined our cancer PTLs uh, eventually. But I think there was an argument, if we were going into this again, I think there is a strong argument for doing that sooner. Um, And it it, it takes you back to the short memory thing, you know, so we're obviously now being questioned as to why are we not doing more and faster? Why did we not improve all the things we knew we needed to improve, um, you know, in a more sustainable way at a faster pace? People have already forgotten if they ever in the first place understood what the impact of this pandemic was on, you know, my hospital. And others, I'm sure, are in the same place.
0: For Richard Beacon in Samwell and West Birmingham, there's still more that needs to be done to jo- properly join up patient tracking lists. I think the coordination of what we might
2: term system PTLs or or the delivery of true needs led waiting time recovery across systems or, or even across regions needs to be far more systematic than it is at the moment. It still very much feels... From my perspective, that we're still trying to manage that by
0: organisation. Um, and do you, what does that take? What does it take to get to that to that step?
2: Um, it takes, I think, ICBS being told, and also having the the the, 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 the bandwidth to be able to essentially almost coordinate elective recovery in a not dissimilar way to the way that we coordinated the urgent care response in the pandemic really and um i can feel that improving but it's playing catch up we'll beyond some immediate long cancer waits uh, and so on we're not quite feeling that uh, that nirvana in the in the west midlands yet but it it has to come because otherwise those trajectories for recovery just won't
0: be won't be met richard believes there's work to be done in critical care too in preparation for any future pandemic Or other huge surge of demand for intensive care beds i do think bed occupancy in
2: critical care is dangerously high and there is a lack of directive coordination of mutual aid in critical care networks at times of stress so we've got to plan in policy terms and investment terms for for both of for an improvement on both of those should and when such a such a a situation
0: strike again. Here's Matthew Kershaw from Croydon with his take on that capacity question particularly in relation to the urgent and emergency care pressures the service is seeing at the moment and particularly considering areas like parts of South London and inner West Birmingham which are often deprived more ethnically diverse and suffered more greatly with Covid as well as suffering with other public health problems.
3: What the pandemic and the period post the peak the period we're in now which i think has been really i mean it's been very difficult just in a different way to the pandemic peak um the underlying urgent emergency care demand and it coming back in um, allied to a whole host of other things uh has meant that that you know in inverted commerce more normal urgent emergency care pathway is under such stress both from a physical health perspective and i'd say massively from a mental health perspective uh, and we have not got the capacity Uh, right to address those things. Now, I think the answer to the question, how do you then solve that capacity, is there are multiple routes to it. It's not just about building more and staffing more. It's also about doing things differently, physical and mental health, uh, in my uh, experience and view. Uh, There's a lot we can do. Uh, We're involved in the National Hospital-Only Discharge Programme, and it is actually starting to... dividends in terms of some of the work that we've done in a relatively straightforward way about you know, focusing on all the things within a hospital and a community setting that we control ourselves and making sure that gets done quickly for patients because that helps patients uh, and obviously therefore helps the system. There's also, of course, work with social care uh, and uh, other uh, providers uh, where sometimes that's a delaying factor in discharge. But that capacity doesn't just need more, it means using what we've got better even with that, though, there are some areas where capacity is, is very tight, to the point at which I suggest that it's undercooked for what we're going to need going forward. Um, and part of that links to my second point, which was, I think, one of the things that the three systems you're talking to today have experienced is, a, is endemic COVID. So we've never really, you know, it's a, only very recently we got under a hundred COVID patients out of a five hundred bed base, and we increased the bed base to cope with it. So you know, that that's a that's a fifth of our capacity up until mid April. Absolutely, COVID-filled, f- um, uh, and that's it, that's it, that's that's because it's just circulating around the community. It's not going anywhere because of the nature of our population. You know, it's not you know large houses with big spaces in between them uh, and lots of green areas for people to go and uh, exercise in. That's not the that's not what we have. Uh, And as a consequence, that endemic COVID is driving how we're having to respond now. uh, And it links very much, I think, to something that is very dear to my heart here in Croydon, which is the core 20 plus five issue of deprivation. Uh, That the deprivation scale in Croydon is very, very significant. And as a consequence, we need to see going forward investment and focus on that population in a way that balances up compared to other parts of London and the country where funding uh, may have been better historically and that needs to change if we're going to get the capacity issue sorted both in terms of the base capacity and also how we have other initiatives in play that don't mean necessarily hospital Bed capacity, but other initiatives that help the population that then breaks this endemic approach to all this endemic issue, which then has an impact for a long time for generations of the population. And I don't think that's right and that needs to change.
0: There were some wider messages too, which each of the chief executives shared, both their own reflections of what the pandemic meant for them and the way they work and for the wider system and policy. First, Richard, then Matthew and then Clive.
2: Um, One one immediate thought um, is that uh, the the, the NHS had a rapid rise in public consciousness and a rapid rise in the public esteem in which it was held, and now seems to be suffering, if we're not careful, a rapid decline. So our collective competence, uh, and with the emphasis on the word collective, and and clearly articulating what we're doing to recover things is going to be required if the public discourse doesn't drift further into the nhs is failing as that that worries me a lot i think and i've thought about this quite a
3: bit i'm immensely proud of what staff have done now obviously in my organisation but across uh, the NHS as a response to the pandemic uh, I don't think we can underplay it and you know sitting in conversations like we just had the last hour you know you rethink what people did how they did it uh, and the immense sacrifice and you know excellence that they demonstrated and what I would say going forward is let's not lose that Um, we need to build on the legacy of of Covid um, uh, you know identify those things that the 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 pandemic put into sharp rel- relief and said look you know there are some things here that just aren't good enough uh, and we need to address those but also maintain the you know the innovative uh, the engagement uh, uh, approach that we had and use that positively going forward so i think that would be sort of my reflection of uh, of the of of, uh, of the pandemic in terms of a policy point l- linking to that for me uh, innovation improvement is very linked to the place that we work uh, innovation from above isn't innovation innovation is people on the ground working together as partners across you know health and care voluntary sector physical mental health etc people coming together to address the issues that they are facing in their locale and uh, at my job in Croydon place is to facilitate that the job of people at, at higher levels in terms of region and nationally is to create the conditions where that can happen and and I think that is for me a really really important point that we do not want to lose because otherwise heaven forbid next time there's a pandemic we'll be learning the same lessons we've learnt this time and that would be a, a real travesty.
4: So I have to say the way in which uh, my colleagues here at King's have responded, but, but equally across the entire NHS has, has made me feel personally very proud. And I, I have also been in NHS a long time. And although certainly the hardest part of my career, uh, this has been the greatest privilege, actually, to lead a, a place like King's uh, du- during this pandemic. And um, I think in terms of learning, um, communication, communication, communication. And I know I'm not the first person to say that, but but certainly uh, communicating so regularly, so frequently frequently with, with my colleagues was clearly so important. And I think we need to keep that uh, going, not just for our staff, but but also for our patients, particularly patients now who are waiting long periods of time on waiting lists. And I think we've got to improve the way we communicate with, with, with our patients, uh, uh, certainly compared to how we used to do it. And finally, in terms of the system, um, suppose the only thing I'd say is elective recovery is not just a provider problem. Uh, You know, it is it is about the stock and the flow of patients. It's a whole system question. It's the systems who are going to make a difference in terms of
0: elective recovery, not just the providers on their own. And finally, Susan
1: Gilby. I think what I would ask from the the system, if you like, from the national team is to actually have a very hard look at the evidence in terms of what what resulted in better outcomes than it might have done what actually was the right thing to do at the time based on where we were. But in retrospect, you know, the learning would be, we would have done something differently now and we will do next time. Um, But also um, to, to be clear that we haven't, just to be clear about, it comes back to the issues around short memory. So when you say, do what you need to do and we will support you, It doesn't mean we will support you today or next week or in six months. It means we will not forget what you have been through and we will support you in the years coming out of it. And so I guess what I've learned is that there isn't a cavalry coming across the hill. Um, So you have to have your systems and processes, your teams there, and you have to be visibly leading from the front. Um, but you need to keep communicating uh, the situation that you're in with your, um, with your system, uh, with your regulators, uh, and make sure that you're continuously reminding them where you've been and where you're coming from, as well as acknowledging where you are. Thank you for listening.
0: For details of our analysis of the trusts most affected by COVID throughout the pandemic so far, go to hsj.co.uk or follow the link in the notes. And please join us again next week for our regular HSJ Health Check podcast.